My name is Christian Kokoscheid. I'm the spiritual life director here at K2 and one of the teaching pastors, and I'm really excited to be here with you this morning. We're going to look at mercy and what, what mercy means, and um, we will continue in our series. Thanks, buddy. In our series, The Opposite Way. Now, has any one of you ever really had a total stranger go out of their way to help you with something? You had that, like a, a total stranger, somebody you didn't know? It's rare, isn't it? It's rare for us to encounter mercy from people, especially people we don't even know. So today, like I said, we're continuing in the opposite way. And we, we call this series the opposite way. We're looking at Matthew 5, at the Beatitudes, at Jesus' first teaching publicly. And we called it the opposite way because the principles that Jesus is talking about go very much contrary to how the world that you and I live in operate and the world that he lived in operates. He's talking about living in a way completely contrary to what the world thinks, living the opposite way. And so in the last few weeks, we've looked at, at those who are poor in spirit, that theirs is the kingdom of God. We looked at those who mourn, who are sad, that they will be comforted. We looked at the ones who are meek, those who are under the control of others, and they will inherit the earth. We looked at those who hunger and thirst for justice, and that they will be filled I don't think any of us would look at somebody poor in spirit, somebody depressed, somebody perpetually sad as somebody who will inherit the earth, do we? We don't think of, of, of people who are mourning becoming happy again and those who, who want justice to be filled. We don't think of those things as things to, to pursue and things that make us blessed because Jesus calls each of these people blessed. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, blessed are those who mourn. So today we'll look at blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Now when I look at that, that those who are blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Again, it, it's, it's really contrary to how the world tells us to live. We're not really encouraged to live merciful lives, to have lives of compassion and of self-sacrifice. We live in a world that teaches us from a very young age to get our elbows out and, and to fight for ourselves, to look for our advantage, not the advantage of others. And really the principle of survival of the fittest in, in our daily life is very much the mode that we operate in. So blessed are the merciful is definitely the opposite way of how most of us and the people we live with live their lives. And so as I was looking at this again, and we've, we've been in this for five weeks, I've been thinking if we were to take, you know, go to the streets, go down to the gateway or downtown with a microphone and ask people, who, who do you consider blessed? Who do you consider leading a blessed life? I think this is more the list uh, that we would come up with. And I call these my, the, the Christian Beatitudes, my, my Christian Beatitudes. <laughs> um, this is, I think, what we would come away with. I think we will find people saying, blessed are the rich, for they can buy whatever they want. I think we would find people saying, blessed are the healthy, for they are not sick. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Um, blessed are the successful, for they have many friends. Blessed are the ones who go on exotic vacations, for they are well-rested and really well-tanned. <laughs> blessed are the attractive, for they will find love. And blessed are the strong, for they will make it far in life. Doesn't that more resonate with the reality that, that you and I live in? So what's up with Jesus' 
making all these statements, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, blessed are the meek, and blessed are the merciful. Was he just totally out of touch with the reality he lived in? Or is he maybe in tune more than anybody else with the real needs that you and I have? I did this last week over in the White Building, and I'm going to do this again here this morning at the expense that some of you might hear this repetitively, but I think it's really, really important. When I went to seminary, one phrase that was drilled into us when we, when we learned how to look at Scripture and how to read it and, and try to understand it in its original context that it was written or spoken into and then transfer those principles into today, in our today's world and, and find out how does what was said 2,000 years ago to Jewish people in, in that mid, Middle Eastern context, how does that apply to us? One thing that got drilled into us was context is king. Okay? Context is king, meaning to understand really any part of Scripture, we have to understand the context that it was spoken into, the historical, the cultural, even the language context, the context of the people that were addressed in, in that instance for us to really understand what is being said. An example of detrimental taking something out of context would be, you know, you flip through Scripture and you come to a verse that says, yeah, Judas went and hung himself. And you say, wow, wow, that's harsh. And you, you flip around a little bit again and you come to another verse that says, now go and do likewise. That if you take those out of context, it has really, really negative consequences. Now, jokes aside, we see this all the time, that people take a verse out of Scripture and, and take it out of the context that it was, uh, was given us and, and make it say whatever they want to say. And we see that in our culture, in the media constantly, where somebody in the, in the context of an interview, an athlete or whatever, some celebrity said something, and it's taken out of context, and it can be completely misconstrued and misunderstood. And the same is true for, for the Bible. And so we have to know the context of what we're looking at. And the context of the Beatitudes of Matthew 5 and 6, the Beatitudes are really just a part of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is recorded in Matthew 5 and 6. And this is a, a sermon that Jesus is giving on the side of a mountain in Galilee, the, the region of northern Israel that he grew up in and lived in and began his ministry in. And right before this, if you were to read Matthew's chapter 1 through 4, you will see that he had just started assembling his crew of disciples. He had just started asking individuals to come and be his followers, which was a very common practice for a rabbi, a Jewish teacher, and it was an honor bestowed on them. So he had just started asking his disciples to, to join him. And then he had started his ministry of healing in that region. And, and through Matthew 4, you will see that he healed many, he healed tons of people, the blind, the lame. And, and word spread. Obviously, they didn't have the media, the internet at the time, but word spread very, very quickly throughout the region, even into neighboring Syria. And people were drawn to, they were coming from all over the place, even other countries already back then, to find this Jesus of Nazareth that they had heard about, to find this man who's obviously sent by God and is healing people left and right. And so we find people here in, in Matthew chapter 5 that have come from all over the place desperately seeking healing of some kind, either for themselves or for others. What's also important to understand in this context is that at that time, in, in, the, in that history and in that culture, people who were sick or unfortunate in, in other ways, whether that was economically or relationally divorced or, or physically sick, were always viewed as being punished by God. 
So if you had misfortune in your life, again, whether that was disease or economic misfortune, it, they would have been viewed by the culture as they're punished by God, they've sinned, they've done something wrong, and, and would have been ostracized in that society and pushed aside. And so those are the kind of people that Jesus is talking to here. Those are the kind of people that he's talking to. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because he spoke to a, to a group of people that was full of people that were sad and depressed because of their state in life. When he said, Blessed are those who mourn. He was talking to a group of people that was mourning either their own misfortunes or those of others. So that's the context that he's speaking into here. Jesus is speaking into very, very specific physical needs of people and addressing them. But then he's also showing the spiritual side of all of those. He's, and we see this all through Jesus' ministry. He was always interested in people's physical needs. Now, his primary purpose for coming was people's spiritual needs, spiritual healing, and reconciliation with, with God the Father. But his ministry constantly shows that he was concerned for people's physical needs as a result of his spiritual mission. So those are the people he's talking to. He's talking to people who are sick, who are desperate, who are outcast, who are ostracized, and who are unfairly judged for where they are in life. And to them, he says, you're blessed. You're blessed. You're blessed. So now he continues in, in verse 7 of chapter 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And again, it's probably the fifth time I'm doing this, but I want to again tackle the word blessed again. Each time I try and give you a little bit more of what that means. We started out with it meant deep, deep happiness and fulfillment. But I found another great commentary by Wearsby who explains the word blessed, which the Latin word used here is beatus. That's why we call it the Beatitudes. Just a little something for you here. But it was a very powerful word, he said, used in that time during Jesus' days, and it meant divine joy and perfect happiness. Right? So when, when Jesus is talking about you will be blessed, he's telling them you will have divine joy and happiness and fulfillment. So it's not just happiness in the context of this life of satisfaction and comfort or whatever. And he talks about you are blessed. He's saying you will be supernaturally, divinely blessed. That's what he's saying to his audience here. So he's saying divinely blessed are those who are merciful. And again, merciful, nothing could be more against common sense because the merciful in our culture are more than others taking advantage of. If you're somebody who has a lot of mercy, who is willing to, to, to act on his compassion and to give sacrificially, you will run into people who will take advantage of you. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. So it's, that's why it is so rare, I think, in our culture and why it is so countercultural to call those who are merciful divinely blessed. I've, I've heard different definitions of mercy and grace. You know, mercy and grace are really closely related. What I've often heard is that mercy is when you don't give what someone deserves, when you could judge, but you don't, when you could take, but you don't, that that's mercy. And that grace is when you generously give when they don't deserve. Now, I'm not so sure that those are really exact uh, definitions, I really think that mercy and grace are two sides of the same coin. 
that both really are almost interchangeably. Mercy and grace can't go without each other. Mercy can mean actively showing compassion to somebody, actively, like, like our BYU friend. By the way, have you ever seen a ponytail BYU fan? I have not <laughs> until this morning, but that's okay. Uh, there's a first to everything. That, that was mercy. That was an act of mercy. He did something. He helped when he didn't have to. But mercy can also be passively, um, in, in a sense more passively, not not uh, doing what, some, what you could do, not punishing when you could, not judging when you could, being merciful. Has anyone here ever been pardoned? Really, really pardoned? Not just gotten away with something where you're like, oh man, dodged a bullet here, you know, maybe wasn't found out and got away with it. That's not what I'm talking about. Has anyone here actually truly, by another person, truly been pardoned? Nobody. Just me. Well, then let me tell you about this. <laughs> I've told this story before, I know. But I want to tell it again because it's, it was a, a mile marker in my life in, in beginning to understand God's mercy and grace better. And if you've heard it before, just forgive me and give me some grace and mercy. <laughs> so I went to Bible college in South Carolina, uh, Columbia Bible College, loved South Carolina, nothing could be finer. And by the way, my Gamecocks just won back-to-back NCAA baseball championships, yes. Anyway, uh, so I went to Columbia Bible College in Columbia, South Carolina. I was in my last semester of college and already had a scholarship to continue at the same school to, con- to pursue a master's degree in pastoral studies and New Testament and all that good stuff. And um, at that time, we, we, I was married already. We had had Clara already. She must have been a year old or so. I was working 40 hours a week on campus. I was working some off-campus trying to make things work and ends meet and get my schoolwork in. And as you can tell, I'm already setting myself up with an excuse for failure here. And we had this paper due. I took a class on Romans, the letter of Romans. And we had a huge paper due towards the end of the, the semester it was a word study where you pick one word out of the book of Romans and you write, a f- uh, what was it? I think it was 15 pages. It's ha- 15 pages on that one word, okay? So I had nothing better to do than to pick the word propitiation. I still don't know what it means. Um, and I wrote a 15-page paper on it. So I picked that word propitiation and then I procrastinated on the word propitiation. Those are two big words for German, by the way. I just want to... Um, <laughs> I procrastinated, and it got later and later, and the deadline came up, and it came closer and closer, and I just, I I don't know what I'm going to do. And then somehow, I had a conversation with with another student who had already taken the class, and he told me, oh yeah, I wrote that paper, man, and I picked the word propitiation, and I'm like, hmm, you did? Interesting. So eventually, I got my hands on his paper, just as a guide, just kind of see what what is this supposed to look like? So I'm a Bible college student, right? Training to go into ministry. And eventually this thought creeps in my mind as, as time runs shorter and I just don't see how I'm going to get this done. So, this paper is four years old. Nobody will know. You copy it, you type it, you hand it in, and nobody's going to know. And you, you do your class. And I was like, nah, I can't do that. You know how you have these conversations with yourself? Anyway, I, long story short, I ended up making the decision to type, retype that paper and hand it in. And um, it's interesting what your conscience can let you do when you just argue long enough with yourselves. And uh, the night before, 
I just could not sleep. I worked fairly late that night. I came home, and I just could not sleep. And I was tossing and turning, and it was so heavy on my heart what, what I was about to do. And uh, so eventually I woke up Sandrine next to me and I said, Honey, I, I got to tell you something. Because I knew I had to get it out in the open. I said, If I knew if I didn't tell somebody, I'm going to actually do this. I need somebody that knows what <laughs> and keeps me accountable. And so I, I told her. And so then it was out. And I knew the next morning I had to go in and, and talk to the professor, Dr. Bedell. And uh, so I, I got to the classroom that morning. Uh, uh, there were other students, other friends that had their papers. And they were like, Wow, you got it done. Well, let me see. And I was like, Oh. I don't have it. And so I went to the office and sat down and I said, Dr. Bedell, I have to, have to talk to you. And literally, I was on a full scholarship at this school. That was part of the deal. And, and so I told him what had happened, what I was about to do. And he just looked at me, didn't say a word. He just looked at me from his chair rocking. And, uh, and then he got up, tall, skinny guy, and walked over to me. And I'm sitting in this chair and I'm saying, what is going on? And he comes over and he looks at me and he extends his hand and he said, I congratulate you on your victory, young man. And I was like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? He said, you've just won a major victory. You could, I would have never known. And he, he then proceeded to say, you have another two months to get this paper done and I will not deduct anything off it. That was mercy. And that was grace. For me, what was on the line, he, he had the authority to kick me out of school. Somebody on a full scholarship and already accepted to, to go get a master's degree in Bible college. It's just not great on your resume to be kicked out of Bible college for plagiarism. I mean, just, that just doesn't... I, I probably wouldn't be here. But Dr. Bedell taught me an amazing lesson of what grace and what mercy means. And... Um, that's, that always comes back to my mind when I think of this passage and others like it. You know, the reason why Dr. Bedell could show me mercy that day is because he had received mercy. He had received lots of mercy. The verse says, blessed are the merciful, those that are full of mercy. You can only be full of something that you have received. Dr. Bedell had received mercy. And he had it, and so he had it to give. And that's what Jesus is asking us to do. And I think we do that naturally with a lot of things. You know, if you are somebody who has a lot of knowledge about cars, you know a lot about car engines, and you run across somebody who needs to know something, who just this last week I had to ch- exchange my alternator on my car. So I called someone up and said, hey, how does this work? And he gave me advice. He was full of knowledge on how that worked, and he freely, naturally gave it to me. If you're somebody who, who loves cooking and is great at that, then you will freely share your recipes, I hope. Or you will freely cook meals for those that, that, that are in need, who had a baby or, wh- or whatever, are in need of, of some support. Then you will readily do that because you, you follow that, you love that. If you're somebody who, who has a lot of financial resources, then, then you will hopefully be somebody who will be quick to write a check for somebody that needs it. You, you might be the one who picks up the, the check at lunch because you've received. And so we give. And it's the same for mercy. We can only give and extend mercy if we have actually received mercy, if we have allowed God to fill us with mercy, to, to make us merciful. It seems like what Jesus is saying here is that we need to 
be merciful so that we can be shown mercy. Did you catch it? He said, blessed are the merciful because they will be shown mercy. It almost sounds like a little bit of a tit for tat, doesn't it? You scratch my back, I scratch yours. You won't get this until you do this. It, do it sounds a little bit like that, doesn't it? I want to take us to a couple of other verses uh, in the context of mercy that, that talk about the same principle, and I want to dig into this a little bit um, with you. What's one of the major ways, and you can talk back here if you want to, what's one of the major ways that we receive and can show mercy? It's maybe the number one way that, that the Bible talks about, and it's really what I received from Dr. Bedell, forgiveness. Forgiveness is really the, the number one way to receive and to extend mercy to others. And there's some interesting parallel passages uh, in Scripture. Let me take you to Luke chapter, 30, uh, chapter 6, verse 35. I'm pretty sure we have that on the screen. Yes, we do. Luke chapter 6, verses 35 through 37. This is Jesus speaking. He says, But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Okay? So there's multiple of these apparent tit for tats. You do this, you get this. You do that, you get this, right? In Matthew 6, 14, it says the following. Again, this is Jesus speaking. He says, um, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And in the Lord's Prayer, it says, forgive me my transgressions as I forgive those who transgress against me. A year and a half ago, so I spoke on that part of the Lord's Supper, uh, the, the, the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> Lord's Supper, yeah, food's on my mind always. Um, and you know, back then I thought, you know what, I don't even want to pray that. I don't want to ask God to only forgive me when I forgive others. That's not how I want it to work. I always want forgiveness, but I want the right to withhold it from others. Same with mercy. I want mercy. I always think I deserve it, don't you? <laughs> but those... Who, who do anything against me don't, and I, we want to reserve that right, don't we? One thing that we've got to understand, that when the Bible tells us, you know, if you extend mercy, you will receive mercy. If you forgive, you will be forgiven. Especially, let, let's look at the forgiveness part. When we talk about someone being saved churchy word, somebody accepting Jesus into their heart and, and beginning to live with him and follow him, Really, what leads to that is a sense of, I need forgiveness. I need mercy. I need God's grace. God, would you forgive me? And then accepting his forgiveness. We have to understand that that act is final. That act is done. When we have come and submitted our lives to Jesus and asked him for forgiveness and receive us as his own, that is done and that is final. However... And I'm sure you have experienced this because I know I have. I don't always live in the sense of forgiveness and freedom. Do you? It is so easy to slip back into that sense of guilt and accusation. And I believe that is 
what Jesus is talking about in the Lord's Prayer and in these instances of if you forgive, you will be forgiven. If you show mercy, you will be shown mercy. I want to illustrate this to you and with an illustration that I've, I think I've used before also, but it's a good one, so I'll use it again. I don't have a partition here, but imagine there were two rooms up here, okay? Two rooms, and, and each room operates in a different, in, on a different system, We have a room of justice over here. In this room, justice will be done and justice will be demanded. All right? In this room over here, the room of mercy, mercy will be given and mercy will be experienced and received. I think what Jesus is saying is that if, you've, if you have become a follower of me, if you are a child of God, You've received mercy, and I want you to live and operate and experience the room of mercy. I want you to live a life where you've received my mercy and my grace and my forgiveness, where you're so filled with it that you just you naturally extend it to others around you. And so that's where you, where you receive it, that's where you give it, and that's where you experience a life living with the effects of mercy, meaning free in, in, in freedom and forgiveness. However, as I said, all of us have this tendency of we demand justice. We, we want justice, don't we? When we're wronged, we want justice. And we want to punish. And we want revenge. And what Jesus is saying is you can't want the benefits of this room and the benefits of this room. It, it doesn't work. You can't, you can't live in both of these. You can't want to demand justice for those who, who sin against you but want to experience forgiveness, mercy, and grace when you sin against others or God. We, even as followers of Jesus, who have been forgiven eternally, we can slip back into this room. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, you will be forgiven the way you forgive, is that even though you will spend eternity with Jesus in this life, we can live a life and still experience judgment and guilt and accusation even though we have the freedom to be in that room. But as long as we demand justice for others, we will live experiencing justice for ourselves. Does that make sense? There's a story in the New Testament in Matthew that illustrates that beautifully. It's Jesus telling a story, really making up a story. It's one of his parables where he makes up a story to illustrate a point, and it's Matthew 18. And it's a story, it's actually titled The Unmerciful Servant. And Jesus tells the story of a king who, who calls in his servants to settle, or people that work for him, servant, settle accounts. And one of them has a huge outstanding debt towards the king, the equivalent of millions of dollars. And so he says, can you pay me back? Which would be just. And the servant says, no, I can't. I can't right now. And apparently this has gone on for a while. And so the king says, you know what? I'm just going to have to demand justice here. I'm going to have you thrown in jail and I'm going to have your wife and your children sold so that this, this can be paid back. And the guy falls on his knees and begs for mercy. He says, please don't do this. Have mercy on me. Give me a chance. Give me some more time. And he says, the king is overcome with mercy. And not just says, okay, I'll give you more time. But he says, you know what? I'm just going to completely forgive all your debt. Go. Can you imagine? So the guy is completely forgiven, debt-free, and free to go. 
And he goes. And you would think, man, he's just so flown over with mercy and forgiveness and grace that, uh, that he would go and, and, and you know, just hug everyone that comes into his path. But he runs into another servant who owes him the equivalent of a couple of dollars. And you know what he does? He grabs him by the collar and says, I need my money and I need it now. And he can't pay him, so he has him thrown in jail until he can pay him back, which that doesn't quite make sense. I don't know how he makes money in jail, but he has him thrown in jail. Other servants observe this and go back to the king and tell him, Dude, the guy that you just forgave everything, this is what he did. And the king is outraged and brings him back and has him thrown in jail. He, he brings him to justice because the servant had chosen to live in the room of justice. Yeah, he wanted mercy for himself, but he wasn't willing to extend it. And we can only choose one of those rooms. Forgiveness, by its very definition, is an act of mercy. It literally means, it literally means to release someone of a debt. Really, when we forgive somebody, we choose. What we say is, I choose to live with those consequences and not hold it against you. That's what forgiveness really is. It's moving from, from justice and from what is fair to mercy, to grace. And the servant here, by accepting the king's forgiveness, he stepped into the room of grace and he experienced it there. But when it came to his own sense of, of justice, he moved back into the room of justice. What room do you and I live and operate in? I know you and I want to live in the room of mercy because we want to reap the forgiveness. We want to experience grace. We want to experience mercy. But I also know I often want justice. I often want revenge. What room do you and I live in? If we choose to live in the room of justice, we just have to know that we're going to live in a room of guilt and accusation. And all you can do in this room is bring judgment on people. If we choose to live in the room of mercy, grace, and forgiveness then we will experience the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy and the freedom that comes from that and we will be able to extend it to others. Luke 6, 36. Let me go back to that real quick. Luke 6, verse 36. Oh, there it is. It said, be merciful just as your father is merciful. So he's asking us to be full of mercy like the father is. And here's the only way that we can do that. The only way that we can enter from the room of justice to the room of grace. There's a door. And that door is called Jesus. It's only through our receiving mercy, grace, and forgiveness through Jesus that we can en enter into that room, that we can be filled with mercy so that we can be merciful just like the Father is merciful. The requirement for getting into that room of mercy is receiving Christ's mercy. 
Basically, God is saying, I want you in this room. The only way you can get in is that you experience my mercy, my grace and my forgiveness. Let me give that to you so that you can go into this room, be full of it and, and extend it to others in there. The reason why Jesus told us that story, I believe, of the king and the servant is because all of us, like the servant, have an insurmountable debt an insurmountable debt. And that's why Jesus, I think, chose this huge number, millions, the equivalent of millions that this servant owed. There was no way he was ever going to pay that back. And there's no way on earth that you and I can pay the debt that we owe God. The gap between him and you and him and me was unbridgeable for you and me. Not possible. But he made it possible. He could bridge it from his side. And we have to come to a point of recognizing that insurmountable debt. We have to come to a point of recognizing our separation from God and that we can do nothing about it. We have to come to the point spiritually like this servant on his knees begging for mercy. We have to come to the point where we say, God, I cannot do it. I cannot meet your standard. I cannot pay the debt that I owe you. I can't do it. Would you have mercy on me? Would you pour your grace out over me? Would you forgive me? And like the king, God's going to say, you know what? You don't, I'm not going to give you more time to figure this out. I'm just going to do away with it. I'm going to have my son who owes me nothing pay all of it for you. That's God's mercy. That's his grace. And all we have to do is recognize it and say, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Let me step into this room of mercy. Let me step out of this guilt and out of that accusation and out of that bondage and out of these chains. And let me walk into freedom and grace and forgiveness. And God is inviting us. He's inviting you maybe this morning. He says, come into this room of mercy and grace. It's filled with me. That room's filled with you. <laughs> come into this room filled with me. Come in here through Jesus. I want to ask the band to come up. You know, I'm doing my best here as a green card holder being patriotic. Tomorrow we're going to celebrate this country's freedom, a freedom that I get to enjoy here too. We're going to celebrate the day that, that this country declared its freedom. And you know, Sundays for us are days where we can celebrate and declare our freedom. Our freedom from justice our freedom from judgment, our freedom from guilt and from accusation. That's what we're here to do today, to celebrate the freedom that God offers you and me through his mercy. He wants to fill you and me with his mercy and grace so that we can go out and show it to others, that we can be an agent of his love and mercy and grace to the people around us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I, I do thank you for tomorrow.
I do thank you that we have the privilege of living in a country where we can or even have the freedom to be here this morning, to sit here, where we have the freedom to look at your word, where we have the freedom to speak, to speak about our faith, to speak of you, freedom to enjoy each other. But Lord, let us never, never lose sight of the freedom that you brought, of the freedom that you offered to us, the freedom that you're offering here this morning the freedom that goes beyond this life and this earth, a freedom that, that goes into eternity, a freedom from sin, a freedom from guilt, a freedom from accusation. And your word says that if we come to you and if we accept you and we become your child and we are in you, we are free of condemnation and accusation. Well, would you help those of us who've, who've never stepped into this room of mercy and grace? Would you draw them today? Would you draw them into a, an awareness of their separation from you? And would you draw them with a taste of your love and your freedom? And I pray, Lord, that, that they would take you up on your offer of your son paying the whole debt and walking into this room of grace and enjoying your freedom today. Lord, for the rest of us who, who've already began walking with you, Lord, would you show us the times when it's so easy for us to slip back into judgment, slip back into demanding justice for others. Lord, would you protect us from that? Would you fill us with your mercy again this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.